Linux Out Loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we are spotting off about Linux gaming distros. So let's get into episode 31. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. With me today is Wendy, the network's exciting high-definition 4K Linux photographer extraordinaire. And Matt, where listening to him is like watching your worn-out VHS home video on your family vacation to Alligator World. You aren't sure what's more painful, the actual experience or the watching it on VHS. How are you two? So, Nate, I'm not sure if I should take offense to that, seeing how you're the guy with the <laughs> retro tech enthusiasm here. You'd be subjecting yourself to that pain of watching VHS that's worn out. Yeah, you're right. I volunteer to be a part of the show where you get to watch the rolling screen of a VHS tape called Matt. It's great. How's the alligator world? Uh, from the memory of it and the stretched out memory of it, I should say, pretty good. <laughs> awesome. Well, Wendy, I see that you have fixed your dishwasher. Yes. Thank goodness. We've actually had this dishwasher now for a few years and it started leaking, and I was hoping that it was just a hose. And the time that went out was a really bad time. We had a bunch of stuff going on. We were getting ready to go out of town for some family-related things, and we didn't have time to pull it out and fix it. So dishes got backed up. Everything else got backed up as we were working on other things. And when we got home last weekend... Pulled it out, figured out what the problem was. It was a faulty part that now has been replaced by another part. And the way that they did it was incredibly dumb. I don't know how this dishwasher went out the door the way it did. The way the seals were for the heating element, there was nothing to sandwich that seal between the nut on the outside and the rubber gasket on the inside. Like there was no counter pressure against it. And that's where it was leaking. That nut had come just a little bit loose, which you couldn't have them super tight anyway. So then it was leaking water out of the back of the dishwasher, got a part ordered. It was incredibly easy fix. And I'm like, yeah, we're on a roll. So then my washing machine decided that it was going to fail. But to be fair, this washing machine is now eight years old. And it's not the whole machine, it's just the drain pump that's the issue. And from the research we did, the drain pump seems to be one of the first things to go, a pretty common issue for them, especially around this age. This washing machine has washed a bunch of laundry. I used cloth diapers. We got this one when my youngest was very, very little, so it went through at least two years of diapers with him, all of our clothes that are super dirty. I don't get paper towels, so I wash all of our cleaning towels. Our guinea pig cages have reusable liners that we've made and washed. Like, there's an absolute ton of laundry that goes through this house, so I don't blame it for going out. It's done lots and lots and lots of work over the last eight years that we've had it. Hopefully, that part will be here on Thursday tomorrow. We're recording on a Wednesday. I was already behind on laundry when it broke, so I might have to make a run to the laundromat today just so we have something to wear for co-op tomorrow. I have to say that having an appliance that you depend on, like a washer or a dishwasher, break on you is one of the most incredible life-disrupting activities to cope with. Yes. I mean, you can go to a laundromat, I suppose, and wash your laundry, but that is super inconvenient and basically wipes out a day of productivity. Also, a laundromat's not exactly cheap. Getting a replacement washer or fixing the washer can sometimes be a shot in the dark, let's say, especially if it's an electronic issue. Now, yours is just a pump. Right. That's awesome. You just have a failing pump. If I have to choose my failures, a failing pump is probably one of my favorites. Electronic component failures, those are expensive and they don't necessarily always fix the problem. Surge suppressors are great to put on your major appliances. Just saying. That is a really good idea because we don't have one on any of the major appliances. And if something were to happen to them, that could be quite catastrophic, especially if it was multiple major appliances at once. That's a good idea. Well, I lost my washer not long after buying a washer. 
basically two washers that were electronic board component failures. And they were right after we had like some power surges. I know oh. what it was. So it was the power surge that knocked it out. The replacement washer I did buy the first time, it's been both times at this house too. I didn't like the first washer. I didn't like the second washer I had. And the one I have right now, I got the beefiest appliance surge suppressor <laughs> that I could find to put on it. And it's been going fine now for about a year or so. Almost a year. Wait, no, I've been here a year, about six months. Wow, that's a lot of washers to go through in six yeah. months. And I would love for you to share the beefy surge suppressor that you have put on there. Yeah, it's a little bit ridiculous looking. So like, don't bring any company into your laundry room, but I will share the link to what I bought so that you have the exact same one. My laundry room's the closet, so I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, don't make the laundry room the focal point of, of a guest <laughs> appearance in your house. Definitely try not to. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. I will definitely check that out because I don't want another problem, especially another one where you're going to have to go like digging through all of the different boards and stuff. That's definitely a downside of the current appliances is all the electric boards in there. I know it's one reason I've complained about new cars is those boards that go bad. They can be really, really hard to find a replacement for, especially if the appliance is so old. But if the rest of the things work, then why do I need to buy a whole new X just because one board is bad or something like that? So I am definitely interested in that. Hopefully I will have a working washer sometime tomorrow night. But for the meantime, I need to at least go do one batch of towels and one batch of regular clothes so that we can be clean and have something to wear tomorrow. But Matt, you've had way more fun than me working on appliances. You actually got to go somewhere and check something out. Nate, do you remember, I know this might still be a little new to you. Do you remember a game for the PlayStation called Silent Hill? Nope, not a clue. <laughs> <laughs> so Silent Hill is a survival horror game. It is actually based on a real town that back in the 1960s, there was a fire in a coal mine that was underneath the town and the coal mine is on fire for the next 250 years. Needless to say, the town has become abandoned for the most part. There's like four people that actually live in this town still. It's not even a town, but it was at one point. I ended up going to what inspired Silent Hill. And not going to lie, I can see why it inspires Silent Hill. The town is called Centralia, uh, PA, or Pennsylvania, out in the mountains. And it was an interesting experience. A lot of quad trails. The main road goes right through what used to be town, US 61. And then the side roads, they just kind of stop. So it's really weird when you see these roads, they're still paved. It's like they fall off the edge of the earth kind of deal. So... If you've ever seen the Silent Hill movies and you actually see where like they look down and you can't see the bottom of the end of town, it's kind of what Centralia is like. But it's weird because as you're coming down the hill, if you've seen Silent Hill the movie, the church plays a big focal point. And literally as you're coming down this hill to get into what would be Centralia, you can see a church off of the distance. Literally nothing else but trees around it. That's cool. Really cool. Um, definitely an interesting experience. I was up there for a couple of days, just camping, looking around, you know, that kind of stuff. It was definitely different. I actually enjoyed it. So inspiration from the real world going into the virtual and the virtual inspired me to go visit the real. So that was kind of my adventure for this past weekend. Did you take any pictures? I'm sure they'd be lousy compared to Wendy's pictures, but you know, <laughs> even one of your flip phone picture taking... My flip phone picture taking ability, you mean? Yeah. You got that Razer flip phone, didn't you? Yes, that's what I meant by flip phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do have some pictures. I'll send them your way when I get a chance. I believe... That'd yeah, be awesome to see. Wendy's got a couple of them, but... But it was definitely an interesting experience. You have a chance and you're a fan of like Silent Hill and those kind of games. You will definitely get your creep on when it comes to this particular, if you visit this particular town. We weren't the only ones there. I did notice this has kind of become like a, a touristy thing because they have, at one point they had this place or like a three and a quarter mile portion of old US-61 that they had redirected to go around Centralia. 
So it was just this abandoned highway and it had become uh, locally known as Graffiti Highway because it was just everything you could think of, like Mad Max, post-apocalyptic kind of road. Like it's all different teeter-tottered layers of tar and just all that kind of stuff, graffiti all over it. But unfortunately, that was not there anymore because the, a private equity firm owns that particular piece of property. So what ended up happening is they filled it in with trees and a whole lot of dirt. So they rerouted a highway because because of the fires underneath the town wow because back in 1982 a kid almost fell down a sinkhole that they said was about a 150 foot drop down into where the tunnels were most of the town has been intimate domained and the Back in like 2012, they came out with a deal for the remaining people to let them live there until they pass and then the state will take all the property and stuff. So, wow. What do I haven't even heard of this at all? How is it I, I missed this entire... It was a big story when it happened and I'm trying to remember where I heard about it. It was some show on Discovery is where I've seen it. I don't know if it's what on earth. It actually might have been what on earth, but... That's how I knew about it, because I'm nowhere near where Matt is, because that's pretty close to home for you, isn't it? Uh, no, that's about an hour and a half from where I'm at. Relatively close to home, speaking in comparison, obviously, but not close, close, close enough. It's a drive. You spent some time there, but it was close enough that you could go take a trip within a weekend and then back home. Yeah, definitely. So while I was out visiting Silent Hill, Nate, you were doing stuff with robotics and Super Nintendos? Well, not exactly robotics. So there is a game made by the 8-bit guy called Petsky Robots. The game was originally designed for the Commodore Pet Computer from 1970-something because there was not a whole lot of software for it, like new software for it. And that was done because someone created something called a mini pet so you can have like a brand new pet computer if you wanted. The 8-Bit guy determined that there wasn't any good games for it, you know, something of note for it. He set out to design and make this game. And then he ported it to other Commodore platforms, Commodore VIC-20, the Commodore 64, and then other platforms as well. There's now a port for the NES, the Super NES, with better graphics, but all of the same basic gameplay with the same core maps, just with different tile and graphic sets and features and whatnot. But for the most part, it's all the same game. So anyway, I have purchased this game for my Commodore 64, and I got the VIC-20 version along with the pet. And it has this little adapter you plug into what's called the user port on the back of the Commodore 64 that you can then plug a Super NES controller into. So this way, instead of using the keyboard to control it, you can use a SNES Lite controller and do all the things you need to do in the game. Well, I want to play the game on my the re-implementation of the Commodore 64 called The C64 by Retro Games out of uh, the United Kingdom. And it uses USB and HDMI as opposed to, you know, the old connectors and whatnot. And it has like a carousel. It's a little more, let's say, living room friendly than an actual Commodore 64. So you can plug in a USB SNES-like controller, but the game doesn't recognize that as an input. And even on the 8-Bit Guy's site, he says he doesn't support that. I was doing some digging on the internet to understand how to use these things, these com configuration files. So you can actually pass to a game or the software how to interpret different inputs taking some time to understand how this CJM configuration file is. This allows you to determine how it treats a joystick or like what kind of display to use because as you know, Matt, when playing games on PC, you have to sometimes configure some things to get it to work because of the various compatibility issues. Well, that exists, I think, on all computers at this point. Using this configuration file, I figured out how to map out like how the whole thing works. It's basically just a value separated by commas and each of those values represents something. So it can be a space bar, you know, pushing up on a joystick or down, or it can be any of the keys. So using the keyboard input and doing some digging and understanding how these inputs work, I created a matrix for the joystick input. And it took me a little time to do, but then I also realized I can use not only like a, a SNES style gamepad, but I can use like a, a two-stick controller, it's like a PlayStation-like controller for playing these games as well, which means I can actually move a lot more of the controls that would be function keys on the keyboard to the joystick itself. So to make it easy, the subset of people who have a retro computer, the C64, and of that subset, a smaller subset that has Petsky robots, I don't know how many people are actually going to have that. I put together some configuration files you can download from cubiclenate.com. They'll have the file that you can put in alongside program so that when you start up the game, you can use a SNES-style gamepad on your the C64. 
I set it up also to use the PlayStation-like controller so I can use the L3 and R3 buttons to cycle weapons as well. And then I figured out how basically the rest of... Hold on. So anyway, I figured out how to, all this stuff works together. I created a special configuration file for using the Commodore 64 version of the game, as well as the VIC-20 version. Uh, it works quite well. I'm pretty happy with it. And so I released it. I uh, published an article, and I'm sure um, at least a dozen people out there will find it interesting. I'm sure more than a dozen people will find it interesting. I love how you work through some of these different, I wouldn't necessarily say issues, but there was a goal that you had in mind, and it was going to take some time to figure it out exactly how you wanted it. And you not only shared with everybody how you did it, but then there's the file there. So if they wanted to and make some changes to theirs, they absolutely can. How is it gaming? I actually, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I kind of like it better than the original hardware. Ooh. I know Matt will use this against me. The reason is I don't have a lot of patience to sit for an extended period of time in front of a computer or whatever to play a game, which is why I like the Steam Deck, because I can play a little bit, put away, play a little bit, put away. Right. So I can then on the C64 the re-implementation of the Commodore 64 using basically modern components, I can play the game, do a save state, walk away, come back later, and then keep playing as I feel like it. There's not a save game feature within the game itself. That's what makes it nice for me. And I don't play a lot of games, I would say. I mean, I do, but I don't play all that much. And when I do play, it's only for a few minutes at a time, just kind of reset my mind a little bit, you know, kind of do the, um, the yeah. soft reboot, as it were. And so this makes it nicer for me in my habits. Also, I can take my learnings here and translate that to a lot of other games, really, that use keyboard commands or that are keyboard heavy and just have the joystick or the PlayStation-like controller be the interface for it. Because there are so many buttons on it, I can do a lot of things that way. And that, I think, is actually really convenient. And I would not have been able to do that had I not taken the time to figure out how Petsky Robots works and continue to dig into a little bit more to figure out how to utilize a PlayStation-like controller on the system as well. So it's really neat that it can even do that. It has all those inputs in there. I'm pretty sure it just uses some sort of a Linux kernel that drives the thing. So pretty much anything that Linux can handle, the C64 thing can handle as well. I'm not a very big fan of using a controller in games, and maybe it's just my lack of coordination. I know my daughter prefers, even if it's on a computer, to play with a gamepad over a keyboard. I seem to just do better with a keyboard, but it's really cool. I'm super excited to see the way that you can take this and change it to make it work for the other games that you have in your library. I've heard of this game by 8-Bit Guy. He does some amazing stuff with some retro hardware, but I've never actually played it myself. It's really quite a good game. My kids like playing it too. The interface is really neat. Using a gamepad, it works a lot better than a keyboard. There right. is a mouse that can work with a Commodore 64, but it's not really a mouse-centric game. But it works really well with the control pad, for sure. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, well, let's say, complex, especially for a guy like me. But standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. Predictable pricing, robust product documentation, and services that developers love. That's DigitalOcean. Get support at every stage of growth, from teams of one, so just you, to teams of a thousand with simple, powerful cloud computing and growing at DigitalOcean. As a listener of Linux Out Loud and a member of the Tux Digital community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, go to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform Go to do.co slash tux2022. Gaming on Linux is kind of expected at this point, as it seems that more and more things really use Linux to underpin gaming. And as such, there are gaming distros out there, Linux gaming distros that focus on the gaming experience itself. And so I thought it'd be a great idea to have a conversation about 
the various distributions of Linux that are gaming-centric and some of their unique competitive advantages that each of them provide. I don't know some of these on the list because, well, Matt, you're more the gamer than I am, but I think we all know about Garuda Linux as a Arch-based operating system that has some customizations to it that are not as Arch common, or how would you describe Garuda Linux for those that are maybe have never heard of it? So it depends on the version of Garuda you get. Let's go with that first. Oh, so there's multiple versions of it. There are multiple versions of Garuda. Personally, the one I use is the uh, KDE Dragonized Edition. That's the one I ever used. I don't use the Gamer Edition because it loads too much of what I don't use. If you want every aspect of gaming stuff thrown at you out of the box, the Gaming Edition is great. I'm more of the pick and choose kind of deal. So there's a nice little tool in Garuda called Garuda Gamer on the Dragonized edition. And I believe it's across all the editions. It will list a lot of the components and stuff, especially if you know what you need in a simple checkmark kind of interface. So just you'll see the name of the app, the icon, checkbox to install. It gives you options for like mini galaxy, uh, heroic, you know, Steam, Steam native, if you want to use the native stuff as opposed to uh, the Steam bundle libraries. Just a lot of different applications, uh, polychromatic, there's uh, open RGB, there's tons of stuff that is specifically related to gaming that it allows in a simple, nice user interface to click and install. So like if you run AMD, it has core control. If you have NVIDIA, it gives you green with Envy, which is like the more customized version of or I should say the better version of the NVIDIA X server settings app. That is kind of its bread and butter. There's those type of tools, but it also incorporates things that, Nate, you would normally say that is Arch's Achilles heel, that it's always because it's bleeding edge that it breaks and blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. It uses ButterFS by default. Oh, so it uses a project that OpenSUSE has really been cranking away at. So it's, it's reaping some of the benefits of the OpenSUSE project. That's good. That's good. I'm glad. It uses the GraphQL <laughs> tool for it, which is Snapper. Nice little interface tool for managing your backups and stuff. It does not come with a bad looking, (laughs) how do I say that politely? It doesn't ship with the default plasma experience. Let's put it that way. (laughs) And I'm talking like if you install Arch and you went and just use the plasma meta package to install it, you don't get that experience. It's very customized. It's very colorful, uh, dark themes all around. That's the default. There's a lot to like if you're a gamer. There are a lot of nuances that you will need to know because it's still arch. It's still kind of piecemealing certain things together. So that's why I say if you just want the out of the box experience of just gaming and going, you know, click play and go, just get the gaming edition, which has all that stuff and tons of extras. For me, I'm more of the the pick and choose kind of stuff. It's like, oh, I only need DXVK. I need wine. I don't need this particular emulators. And there's so much stuff that that particular app will give you access to that it's crazy. So for me, Garuda tends to be that happy medium where it's like, it's bleeding edge enough, but it's not going to break. And if it does break, I can roll back, which is fine. That's Garuda in a nutshell. Yeah, that is handy. I think that snapshotting and rollback feature should be universal on all Linux distributions. I think that would be a competitive edge that Linux in general could give other options out there by having that rollback feature. So I know that you're working on another, or you have worked on another gaming-focused distribution, but this one wasn't gaming-focused originally. It kind of became that way, this Ubuntu budgie. Yeah, so actually me and Maru Gaspari, a couple of the other folks over on the Ubuntu budgie team, they were looking at loading certain things that, uh, let's just say Ubuntu is not any Ubuntu at that particular moment, was not the best distro to base a gaming distro off from or anything the out of the box experience for gaming on ubuntu prior to 2204 not the best let's just put it that way a lot of ppas a lot of weird esoteric kind of stuff that you had to find and just not a great experience maru tested a lot of the stuff that i made some recommendations for so nate you've used this application like it's a smaller selected down version of Garuda Gamer. Okay. Has a lot of tools and a lot of stuff uh, in the the budgie welcomes. I believe it's the budgie welcome. So if you go to the gaming section, there's different tabs that will give you certain launchers and stores. So it'll give you access to Lutris, which in turn pulls down all the stuff you would need from Lutris. 
oh wow so things like dxvk things like wine they incorporated the user experience into that stuff so they made sure that certain elements that are required for it because you can pull down lutris all you want but if you don't have dxvk and you don't have wine Lutris isn't going to do you any good. Now, there are certain prerequisites that Lutris will pull down, but it doesn't always work. You wanted to make sure that if those weren't detected on the system, that stuff gets pulled down. They have certain applications that are available that normally really aren't available on Ubuntu because they tie them into the PPAs. You have things like Core Control, there's OpenRGB, OpenRazor, Polychromatic, and there's a few other tools in there too. They've looked at it for more of a user experience where it's just literally a one click and you really don't have to know the ins and outs and the intricacies of like, oh, this requires this and this and this requires this. It's literally just click a box and it just click install and it just pulls down. I wouldn't say refined version of Garuda Gamer, but it's a more trimmed down end user focused kind of way. Yeah, I would say focused. That's probably a good descriptor. I'm really glad that we're doing this because I never would have thought of Ubuntu Bungie as a gaming distro. And on top of that, I've never used Lutris. And part of it is every time I've looked at it and trying to get games set up using it, it was just overwhelming. And I'm like, forget it. I don't want to go through all the work to do that. I've got Steam and anything else can just (laughs) sit there because I'm not messing with it. But if Ubuntu Bungie was on a gaming system, I might actually give it a try. So one thing that they're eventually looking to do, I'm not sure how far along this is. I haven't looked. It's been a while since um, I'm, I'm only interested in this stuff on like the LTS releases because that's where it makes the most sense to me. The interim releases right. have, to have too little support time frame wise to really like for development. They make sense. I'll just put it that way. What they're eventually looking to do is specifically detect like your GPU as an example and pull down the driver, the newest drivers. So if it's NVIDIA, generically, most distros ship with the NVIDIA drivers now installed. But I'm talking like sometimes when you pull down an Ubuntu NVIDIA driver, it's not the newest one. They are looking to make sure it's the newest one, the newest stable, I should say. If it detects AMD, it's like they want to eventually implement it so that you, that you have the newest kernel and that you have the newest Mesa. They're looking to implement it in a way that is far different than a lot of other distros do. I can't verify the dates on any of this, but I remember when you were getting involved with Ubuntu Budgie, talking about like your adventures with Maru and whatnot, which seems like every interaction with Maru is an adventure. <laughs> Not insane. long after that, I might have the dates a little bit messed up here. Like maybe I'm, I'm misremembering this, but it seems like not long after Ubuntu started having a gaming focus to it. <laughs> I know the work started last year sometime. And then I think it was like late 2021 when Ubuntu made kind of a push into the gaming a little bit. I'm wondering if the work on the Ubuntu budgie gaming friendly nature of it inspired Ubuntu proper, or inspired canonical, I should say, in pursuing gaming a little bit more heavy. I think there was multiple reasons for that. Honestly, I think it was because Ubuntu got kicked in the pants when short version is Ubuntu was the distro standard for anything to test against when it came to Steam specifically. What is the Steam library bundle using like it was, I think at one point, Ubuntu 1204 for like the longest time. So that was the standard. That was the test for the libraries, etc. And then when the Steam Deck got announced, they kind of got kicked in the pants because they're like, oh, by the way, we're going with Arch. I see. I think it was one of those. Oh, we're not the standard anymore. That's just my personal take, because as you got down the the Ubuntu rabbit hole of trying to game on Ubuntu, that out-of-the-box experience, kind of bad. Yeah, I remember you talking about that before. Ubuntu was supposed to be this for everybody, quote-unquote, for everybody distribution, but the gaming experience had really gone downhill, so they just weren't spending as much time on that as you'd like to see. And then it was really cool that you were able to get involved with the bungee side of it and make this work and have a really solid gaming option for those people who don't want to use an Arch-based distro that like to have an LTS but also get all of the bits and goodies and have that on a dedicated gaming system. The thing that some people like or dislike about this particular thing though, because it's Ubuntu, Ubuntu budgie welcome, at least in this particular instance, is a snap. So this is constantly updated. So if you want the latest, like what's going on with the development of this, it's snap, fresh, tac, tac, edge, Ubuntu, dash, budgie, dash, welcome. That'll give you the most current version that they are working on or doing stuff with. 
Oh, and Wendy, there is one little thing that I forgot to mention. Piper is one of those applications as well, too. I absolutely love that application. I think it's one that more people need to know about. It doesn't currently work with the mouse I have now. So if they ever did add support for the Corsair mouses, that would be mice. The Corsair mice. That would be absolutely awesome because controlling the lighting on my current one, I have to go to a window system in order to set that up. Boo-hoo. Because OpenRGB, I haven't been able to get that one to work with this mouse quite yet. But once I've set the colors, I don't change them. I don't change all of that stuff very often. It's, I want the lights on my mouse to match the lights on the backlight of my keyboard. And that's about it. Like, we don't change. But Piper is amazing. Wendy, if you have one color of everything, it's eventually going to match one of them. <laughs> Yeah, eventually. Well, no, that's why you just make it rainbow. Your mouse will eventually. I don't need rainbow vomit coming at me every time I step up to my computer. Sure you do. (laughs) Nothing wrong with it. My current theme is white keys. And if I press them, they go purple and then they feed back to white. And my mouse slowly transitions between white and purple. That's it. Very simple. One of the districts I do have a lot of experience with is Chimera OS. Basically, this was for quite some time. If you wanted to have a do-it-yourself OS for a console, if you wanted to have a console OS that and the continuation of Steam OS that was on the Debian base that Valve just kind of stopped doing, this was the way to go about it. They incorporate a lot of interesting things. They tried to use the Steam front end, so like big picture mode in this particular case, But they try integrating things like GOG and pulling in your Epic and retro emulators built into Steam. So that way you can select an emulator from Steam and just that's how you interact with the UI and stuff. So there's a nice little web app that you can use built into it. Great little distro because it does different stuff that I like, but it might not necessarily be for everybody. I'm just going to be honest it's very utilitarian and like this is its feature this is its function kind of deal and that's just what it's meant for if you want a consoleized os this is the one i would generically recommend until we see you know steam os i know there's like hollow iso and a few others but camaro os is definitely the one i generically recommend yeah i know when we were originally talking about the living room system that'll eventually be set up This is one of the ones that you recommended having on there. It's probably your top recommendation. I have looked at it. It looks really cool. I definitely think it's in Nate's wheelhouse if he was having another gaming system because of everything that it does with the retro consoles. I could see definitely using this one. I like how it's very, like you said, console focused. I'm looking at what minimal pictures are on the website. It has that similar feel to the Steam Deck, sort of. I think that's pretty rad. Pretty rad. Yeah, so one of the things, they have a very Steam mentality. It's a you know read-only file system. So every time there's an update, it does what SteamOS does in that regard. Honestly, I think SteamOS took a lot of cues from Chimera OS, just the way they implemented it. Really? Chimera OS has the read-only file system. I don't want to say nuke and paves a new version every time, but that's really realistically like what SteamOS does on the Steam Deck. Rewrites it every time. Things like that are always interesting to see when it's a smaller project and then you look at the bigger player and it's doing something similar. It's based on Arch. Based on Arch. You have access to certain things like flat packs that you can integrate into Camaro OS into the Steam UI. There's nice little things that you're just like, huh, there's a lot of stuff that the Valve specifically took cues from. Adopted, yeah. And it does have a more lax version of uh, what you can call a games compatibility list. I mean, granted, now that the deck verified thing is, that's made it totally kind of, I don't want to say irrelevant, but definitely different. It was nice to have when Valve wasn't updating that, shall we say. (laughs) Right, makes sense. Before Valve had a vested interest in it. But one distro I have no idea about, Nate, is one that you would probably like because you're an OpenSUSE fanboy. Mm-hmm. Regatta OS. It's based in OpenSUSE. It focuses on desktop usage and gaming. It seems to have a, a lot of conveniences built into the distro, like out-of-the-box integration with Google Drive, support for configuration of hybrid graphics and notebooks and things like that. Regatta OS also comes with their own store app, 
and it's a very nice looking store at that, which I think maybe um, <clears throat> OpenSUSE could probably use that. I'm just saying it'd be nice to see something like this kind of get rolled into. Uh, yeah, there's potential for that. Anyway, RegatOS also has something called Game Access Portal, which has an extensive library of games ready to install and a lot of optimizations for gaming like AMD FSR built in and so forth. If that wasn't interesting enough, Regato OS also comes with the KDE Plasma desktop environment and some really interesting enhancements to it as well. I don't know, I think Valve could probably use something more like this. In fact, I would potentially go with this. If I were to replace Steam OS, this is something that I would potentially do to put on the Steam Deck since it does seem like it's already focused on that as it is. Looking at just the various pictures that I'm seeing currently. Mm -hmm. Yep. I would definitely agree with the store aspect. I do like it's better design than Discover by far. Right. It gives it more of a, almost an Android kind of Android or iOS like app store kind of vibe. Yeah, I would say so. I love the fact that stuff is listed. If you look at one of the pictures, I think at the very beginning of the site and it shows the store and it's like, price free basically underneath i do like little <laughs> touches like that then and obviously it has like app highlights and stuff that so it's it's a nice little uh feature i wonder if you can get that in other distros i don't know but because it is built in open i'm sure there's just a repository for it i want to try and play with that on regular open because there really won't be very many differences if much at all to the core and the way the open build service works it would just be an additional repository put on there anyway so that I think is really cool. One thing that I'm seeing also is they have for the dedicated GPU stuff or for the dual graphics, you know, the prime or whatever you want to call it. I do love mm -hmm. the fact that they have an application that you can tell it to use the dedicated GPU specific to the application. So if you're playing something that doesn't really require the horsepower, you can exactly have it not use the dedicated GPU. The example they show is like they have a highlight switch for on off, obviously. And it's like OBS. Yep. Theme. Yep. So stuff like that is right. like really exactly. cool to see because that focuses on user experience, which I'm definitely a fan of. The other thing too is they have access to you know GOG Galaxy, Battle.net. Don't really know what Blizzard has going on, but okay. The Epic Game Store, Ubisoft, and Origin as well. That's also neat that they have that stuff baked into it. I don't it. think even Blizzard has an idea what they're doing now that they're part of like Just say it. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. Warcraft 2 Tides of Darkness was great back, you know, some 20 years ago. <laughs> I hear you. But isn't that still in your era? No, 20 years ago would be like early 2000s. I thought you liked games older than that. You, you graduated to a PS2. Oh, that's right. You know, actually, I need to stop saying how many years ago because... When you say 20 years ago and it's outside of the time that I was, you know, in high school, it's kind of bothering me a little bit. So I think we have to refrain from <laughs> such mentions of time. Yeah, we were watching Lord of the Rings this weekend and we were on to the third movie, Return of the King. And I was like, man, you know, the graphics in this still look really, really good. How old is this movie? And then I looked it up and I told my husband and we're both like, man, we feel really Really old, because it'll be 20 years next year. Ouch. Right? Now, to me, it's not that old yet. When I think 20 years old, I think somewhere in the 70s or 80s, I think. Something is stuck in me that I can't seem to quite shake. Well, that's because, you know, that's when it was when you were in high school. So, yeah, not so much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Nate, you know what that means? I don't really want to hear it, but go ahead and say it. You're getting old. Yeah, I know. Every morning I wake up and I am faced with that reality. Yeah. That's not where I thought you were going with that. I had a Sugar <laughs> Ray song playing in my head, but it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy, are, 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 are we talking like heavy metal Sugar Ray or poppy radio friendly Sugar no, Ray? No, the poppy Sugar Ray, the okay. stuff that was on the radio, the stuff that yeah. I heard first. Gotcha. Yes. Mm -hmm. But something that is not old and generically stays up to date, however, because this is also a particular Linux distribution, it was the one that is developed by Glory Sagroll, which is Nabara. I have not personally tried Nabara because, well, it's based on Fedora and, well, I'm not a Fedora guy. So I can't really speak too much on it, but I thought it kind of deserved props because I do respect the work that Glorious Eggroll does do for Proton and Wine because his implementations do usually tend to have more features and functions that are further in, down in the development pipeline than specifically a lot of the base project. Definitely something that I think deserved a, a little props. I am curious about this one. I do really like Fedora myself. I'm a big fan of DNF. I like the way all of that works. 
right now, Fedora is on all of the laptops related to school stuff, other than my daughter's laptop, of course. But everything that other students for co-ops and things will touch, that all has Fedora on it. So I'm kind of curious to give this one a go. Looking over their website, I am not currently seeing any pictures. What desktop does this one use? From what I've seen, at least, it looks like Plasma. But I'm not 100% sure, to be brutally honest. To be fair, if it's a system that you're setting up specifically for gaming... The desktop in general doesn't matter as much because you're not going to be spending as much time. You're not bouncing back and forth between different applications. So it's less of a concern. It's less of a workflow issue. But I'm definitely curious as the different desktops that these game-specific distributions choose and maybe why they use the ones. I stand corrected. It seems to be GNOME because I'm looking at some of the release notes for this and there's a lot of GNOME specific things. Which isn't too big of a surprise where the desktop that Fedora puts out there for their workstation is also GNOME. I prefer the spins of KDE, but it would make sense that they would take the most developed desktop and then just build everything else around it. Well, whatever he's doing, it is fascinating to see the things that he's focusing on. Things like open RGB patches, AMD patches, so patching things specifically for gaming in general, or things that gamers, generally speaking, are focused on. So like the RGB vomit. Also DNF faster mirror enabled and changing the maximum parallel downloads to six, I think is also interesting. That's one nice thing about DNF, I think is those parallel downloads. This is definitely an interesting project. I haven't heard of this before today, I'm sure there are many other distributions out there that I haven't heard of as well. These are just a few of the Linux distributions that are focused around gaming. If there's a distribution that we didn't hit that's great for gaming, let us know. You can leave us a comment below on the YouTubes or send us an email, go to the forums and leave a comment. We'd like to know what distribution do you use for gaming? Is there a specific gaming distribution that might be just a bit better than anything that we talked about previously? This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords, and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com slash tux to get started for free. Say you want that premium account that starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash T-U-X to get started for free. If you're like me though, you want to show your appreciation for this awesome open source project by signing up for that premium edition, especially since it starts at just $10 a year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Well, Matt, on your Linux gaming distribution, whichever one it is that you use, are you playing this Terminator Resistance? Yes, I am. Terminator Resistance is probably, if you've seen any of the Terminator movies since Terminator 2, if you want the best one that has the best plot related to the Terminator feel, go play the video game. That's the best way I can describe this particular game. Terminator Resistance is a fun game. It's got kind of like a Mass Effect feel with like character interactions and that stuff. There's a lot of fetch quests, but they get the aesthetic, the gunplay, and just the overall feel of that kind of future setting that we kind of vaguely see in a lot of the movies. It gets it really, really right. That desperate kind of struggle, you know, man machine that Terminator has always done. And it's interesting to see it play out in the future as opposed to, you know, we always get the time traveling stuff where it's uh, from the the future to the past and all the other stuff. 
Plays great on the Steam Deck, by the way, Nate. Mm. Was it high settings? I was getting between 50 and 60 FPS. So it does play good. Will chew through your battery, though. Won't lie there. It is a very, I wouldn't say graphically intense. Well, the requirements are graphically intense, but the actual, when you look at the game, not so much. Some of the character models are a little off and that kind of stuff. But overall, I think they nailed the atmosphere. You can tell that the developers actually really liked Terminator as a franchise, and you can tell that they generically liked working on the game because you can tell that there's that passion for the source material which a lot of more high-end kind of games like that generically don't get right i like it is it worth the i think 30 dollars 40 dollars uh that's up to you you can get it on ps5 you can get it on ps4 you can get it on you know pc get it on your console or platform of choice you can spend $55 and get the DLC as well. Well, I did not spend $55. I spent, I think <laughs> the game was on sale for 10 when I bought it. And then the DLC was recently on sale and I ended up buying the DLC finally. So, but it is a fun game. So I would definitely recommend it as a game to check out. It is definitely not a family friendly game. But again, if you know anything about Terminator, it is not a family friendly franchise. Wait, it's not? Nate, something tells me you subjugated your kids to the original Terminator very early in their, in their years. <laughs> no, I haven't. There are a lot of movies I want to have them watch, but I don't know if that would be a an indicator of me being yeah, a good parent. Yeah, definitely not. Not yet. When they're a little bit older, you can watch it together, but not quite. Yeah, this one is 2019. The graphics look really, really cool in it. I get what you're saying, where they're kind of bringing in that futuristic look to it. Looks nice. I am not good with FPS games. I've talked about before, like I just constantly die. So if somebody else wanted to play this and I could watch you play, that would be fine. But I don't see me picking this one up at all. Just a quick note. If you watch the original Terminator movie, you see like from his view when when there are, you see like computery things going on on the side as he's scanning stuff. That is 6502 assembler language. And 6502 is the CPU that basically powered the Apple, the Commodore 64, VIC-20, stuff like that. So Terminator is powered by the same technology that brought us the Commodore 64, just to make sure we know that. You think they'd be using something a little bit newer in the future. I'm just kidding. But that was a very interesting tip, or not tip. Probably reliability reasons they, they use the 6502. They still make that chip, believe it or not. Then I guess it probably would be for reliability reasons. If it can continue <laughs> on that long and still be in production, it's got to be reliable. Skynet just has all the right blueprints, Nate. Right. well speaking of code and assembler language wendy you've been assembling a language of python to a robot actually ironically yes i have i've actually spent quite a bit more time working with my robot i've cleaned up my code a little bit more so before i had a function that started my turn Then inside the code itself i had the wait until which got the gyroscope angle And then once it had reached the right angle, then it had sent the command to stop. Now I've got a function set up that it's all one block. And inside that function, I can tell it what angle that I want. I have one for left and right. I could set it up in a way so that I could just use one function and then direct it left or right from there. But when the kids are reading through the code... I like this option of two different functions better, so it's easier for them to see where we're at, what is our robot doing. I know when I've been writing my code and there's multiple turns inside one mission that I'm working on, I'll even label it to decide this is turn one of two, this is turn two of four, whatever it is. So if I need to change something on one specific turn, it's so much easier to go back and find that. Because I've noticed at different times, I'll go in and I edited a turn and I run the code. And I'm like, wait a minute, what in the heck just happened? Oh, you dum-dum, that was the wrong term. And so just having those little notes to the side make a big difference. Just having that function say right turn or left turn, I think will definitely help the kids in the course of making changes and tweaks to their code. Last week, I thought I had go straight by gyro figured out and I didn't 
it's using that gyro at the very beginning when it's setting drive speed, drive power, but it's not actually correcting as it's driving. I found the code in Scratch and I wrote that in Scratch, uploaded it to the robot, and then it starts to drive. And I mean, like, you can push on this thing and it recorrects back to zero. Like, it is so awesome. And I cannot get equivalent code for Python. And it's been really, really frustrating. So I've followed several different tutorials. None of them have given me the same feedback for the robot where I can knock it one direction and it brings itself back to zero. It just changes the course of the robot altogether, which is opposite of keeping us on a straight path. I got frustrated enough with this that I went and hit Reddit. And there are now multiple people of us, because there was already a thread on this, that are having the exact same issue, that they're not able to get this fully working under the Python code. And it has to be able to work. I have seen different codes, different tutorials, where they're using the gyroscope to keep a robot in a vertical position, and it's keeping itself upright with the code. So it should be able to correct that way, Just none of the examples I've seen are working. I know it's one of the things I'm going to be playing with a little bit more. I put a call out in Matrix on Discord, say, hey, if you know Python, specifically if you know MicroPython, now this is just a little bit different. Like I said before, like I said last week, that it's not exactly the same as what you would get with Pybricks, where it's got the full functionality. It is a little bit different. But if you have any experience in that, I would love some help getting this to work so that I can share it with a few other teams that are also struggling to get this to work. But code's cleaned up. I wanted to be able to compare and contrast some different code that I've written before and after. But this last weekend, I got really frustrated at the robot thinking that maybe it was the motors causing issues and I completely tore it down, rebuilt it multiple times. I actually ended up with bruises on my thumbs from taking pins in and out of the robot. It went through several different iterations, but I actually like the way it came out in the end. It's much smaller, much more compact, and I played with some different mounting options for attachments. If you want to see a picture of that, you can find it on Macedon. I did share a quick cell phone picture there so you can kind of see the changes that made from before and after. I didn't get iterations throughout the steps, but I know the one that I'd built just before that, while it had everything on there the way I wanted it, it was just way too big, way too big. And so I do like, for the most part, the robot design that I have now. If I could just get the go straight with the dry row, then I would be set and ready to rock and roll with the kids this FLL season. It seems like there'd be some sort of a scratch to Python converter out there. I did some searches just now to see if I could find anything useful, but I haven't at this point. But it kind of surprises me that you're having issues with that. Well, and it's kind of funny the way it looks in both of those codes. So maybe that's what I'll do in the show notes. If you want to head over to the discourse farm, I will have a screenshot of what that code looks like in Scratch. So you can see what it is. And I've tried to replicate that code in Python. And it just doesn't seem to work. It'll go straight if I have it arranged correctly with the positives and negatives and stuff going on with the motors. But the downside is, is it still won't correct. So there's somewhere in that supposed loop where it's not going back to reading what that yaw angle is and bringing it back to zero. And I'm not sure where it's getting messed up. I'm not sure where in that loop things aren't right. Because when I'm looking at it, it looks fine. I took some code from a tutorial on how to follow a line because there's black lines there on the mat itself. And it uses the color sensors and it follows the line great based on that code. And I'm like, I don't understand why this isn't working. Like that's working. It is using an input inside a loop and recalculating 
how the motors are working together in order to continue to follow that line. I know it's possible. I just can't seem to get it working to just plain and simply go straight. And it's incredibly frustrating. I have several different versions that I have now pulled together and tried. It was actually what I was doing before we recorded this morning again. I was writing out different versions of a go straight function using different commands with starting that motor pair. I've done both the motors individually. I've started them in tank mode. I've done just the regular start and still cannot seem to get that value to work right for it to read the value and come back to zero. Don't know what I'm doing wrong, hmm. like I said, but I know it's got to be possible. Yeah, I'm sure it has to be possible. I have a hard time believing that you can do something in Scratch. That you can't, can't do, do in Python? Python. Like, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to go both ways. I just am not exactly sure how. And maybe I don't need a regular while function. Maybe I need a while true loop. And that will do it because if you want to use the color sensors in order to square up to a line, you got a color sensor on each side, that's the way that you do it. You're using a while true loop in order to get both of the sensors straightened up to either the white line, the black line, whatever you are on the mat, and going from a straight position as you start some other event, some other mission and whatnot. So I'm learning a lot more about Python, MicroPython itself, but I've definitely hit a point of very large frustration. We're not even coding with the kids yet. Tomorrow when we meet, first day of co-op, the kids will be working more on robot design, and we won't even get to actually writing the code until they have the robot itself built. So we are probably maybe another week, two weeks away from doing that, but it's one of those things that I would love to have figured out before we actually start writing the code. It's something that I would love to have time to play with before writing the code. Because I got my turns down. Turns are rock solid and clean. I just need to be able to go straight. And it's a challenge for a lot of people, really. Going straight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my bath is a little wobbly in life too. <laughs> it is actually cooling down outside and you're finding yourself out in your yard on the land a little bit more. What have you been working on? I've been working on clearing some land to put up some fencing. So I've been having my poultry free range and I've been getting more poultry and also they tend to make more of themselves. I have this problem where I need to basically kind of you know rein them in a little bit. And also I've been doing some more work outside of the house. And when I'm here, it's not a problem for the birds to you know, be free. But when I'm away from home, that's usually when, you know, bad things can happen. And also I would like to better protect my animals. So I decided I'm going to be putting up a fence. I started digging into like the brush because I, I have an area that I've designated where I'm going to put the fence. And it is so thick that I've been working quite diligently on cutting through it so I can eventually put up a fence. And it's just been a lot of work. I will say the one nice thing about working outside and away from the computer is I can listen to podcasts and that's okay. It's a, like a, a different mix of things. So it's, it's actually been great for getting caught up on podcasts. But anyway, it's not Linux related, but it's something that I, I really got to push here before winter hits so I can make sure that I contain my birds and whatnot. The big problem is I have ducks and that in and of itself is a problem, but they decide to lay their eggs just kind of randomly in different places. And that tends to attract predators when they're just leaving food out. Nice. They're basically the major problem. The chickens behave themselves. They like to go to a safe spot. But those ducks, those ducks are dumb. And every day is a day of like playing Easter egg hunt on, on Easter morning because they just put them in just different random places. Sometimes just in the middle of the yard, just in the middle, just there's an egg. Yeah, they're they're just absolutely terrible. Oh, yeah. They are. The ducks are are awful. So... If you like ducks, I apologize for telling you your bird you like is awful, but they're awful. It's different when you're just seeing them as you go to feed the ducks or whatnot alongside the river or lake, as opposed to having them where you're dealing with them all the time and you get to understand some of their habits, positive and negative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I got to be able to have a fence to control the, the hiding spots for them so that I don't have a problem with predators. And it's not a big problem yet, but it will become a bigger problem. Especially as winter comes on. And they're looking for food. Yes, yeah. exactly. Good luck with that project. I'm hoping clearing the land and getting the fence up goes relatively quickly 
Fence building has never been one of my favorite pastimes, but I also live in <laughs> Idaho where we have one solid rock around us. And there's nothing like putting in fence as you are dodging rocks. Well, it's mostly sand here. The problem are tree roots, but I do have an auger for any of the fence posts, I, like the larger fence posts I put in. Nice. But a lot of them just doing T-posts for most of it. And then I, a buddy of mine has got a T-post pounder, gas powered T-post pounder. Ooh. So it's not going to be too bad. I can hand pound them in no problem, but I'd rather do it much quicker. Probably by the end of next week to have this done. But the, the harder part really is clearing the land and then you know, dealing with the tree roots. That's that's really the hard part. Putting up the fence itself won't be a problem. But I am going to do a lot of LED lighting on the south side of the fence. That, not the fence that faces the wood line, but the fence that faces where people will be. I'm going to oh, put up yeah. a lot of LED lights on that because it's me. You might as well. I can't wait to see <laughs> it. So is this fence going to be part of your holiday light shows? I'm not sure if it will this year. It might eventually, but that, that's a really good idea. If nothing else, just to change the colors and make it more Christmassy in the wintertime, that would be pretty cool. But yeah, actually, that's a good idea. Let me think about that. Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents, or maybe if you're feeling generous, how about a third? On today's topics, hit the discourse form, drop us a line under the video, or on the contact form by visiting tuxdigital.com contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links at the bottom of the show description. Find other great shows like Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, Linux Saloon, and more at tuxdigital.com. Show off your love for your favorite podcasts and shows by visiting the Tux Digital Merch Store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I paused my game to be here shirt or join hashtag Team Wendy with some sinister Wendy swag. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banter friendly, conversations somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. <laughs>